Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stacy Cordovano, who is the owner of Clay Creek Equine Veterinary Services, and probably just as well-known, if not more well-known, for being the podcast host of The Whole Veterinarian. And you are sitting, what, somewhere between Philadelphia and Wilmington, Delaware? Correct. Right yeah, now? exactly. Yeah, Chester County, right. Pennsylvania. Yeah, I figured not so many people would know Chester County if I threw that out there. But for those that do, now you know the more precise location. But Anyways, Stacey, thanks so much for joining me. Um, looking forward to the conversation today. Thanks for having me. I am as well. And so you've been on a couple podcasts before, but you're used to always getting to ask the questions and letting other people talk. So hopefully this one will be a little different than the other one. So it's not a rehash if someone's heard you other places. But I wanted to kind of kick things off because when we were able to connect and chat before, it was really interesting to hear your story. Just like anytime you connect with another person, you like actually kind of break down some walls and barriers. They start sharing stuff. You're like, wow, that's fantastic. And that's so interesting because so many people have good stories. But you shared about how you went through what you called like a mini midlife crisis <laughs> moment. And I think that was part of the genesis of you starting your podcast. But can you kind of walk through what that looked like, where you were at, how you were feeling, and then how you came through that? Yeah. I don't know if it was a midlife crisis or if it was more a slap in the face to change how I was doing things. But it was the summer and fall of 2018. I was working full time at the time. And I had a three-year-old who was adjusting to life as an older brother. I had a six-month-old second child. And late summer, I got diagnosed with Lyme disease and then kind of got through that. There was a big hurdle with having to discontinue breastfeeding early. And that was a struggle in and of itself. But that's a whole other story. And then I was making Thanksgiving dinner for everyone and I wasn't feeling great. And so I cooked dinner and told everyone to enjoy. And I drove to the hospital and ended up having my appendix taken out a couple hours later. And I had posted that I was thankful for having a great family and a supportive family and friends to get through that easily on Thanksgiving. And a good friend and a physical therapist friend of mine said, there's nothing like your body telling you that you're doing too much, Stace. And I was kind of like, oh, like, that's true. Like, here I am trying to do it all. We all want to do it all, especially moms. And probably everyone looking at me thought I was trying really hard. But I think everyone would agree that I probably wasn't doing the greatest job in any area of my life. And I felt like I was just getting through every day with my head barely above water. And when I really thought about it, I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't giving myself any time. And when you do that, the rest of your life kind of suffers. So I took a few months to heal and get through that. And I started thinking about it and just realizing that I wasn't really happy with how my day-to-day -day was going. So I reached out to a mentor of mine and he helped me basically create a life plan. Like he's a strategic planner. I actually have an episode with him kind of detailing the process. But Dr. Canera kind of walked me through a really simplistic way to look at your life, look at what you wanted it to look like in six months or a year, and then change a few things about what you're doing. And just a few little tweaks really, really changed my life. And I was able to be happier and focus on things in different areas at certain times, not feel as guilty when I was working, be more attentive at home. And then part of my plan was to find some way to give back. Community service has been a big part of my whole life. And going through vet school and a business and motherhood, we kind of lose time to do things for other people. So when I really started thinking about it, I thought of 
my community, which is veterinarians. And the article in the New York Times had just come out about the suicide rate. And not that I didn't know that, but it was like in my face at the right time. And I just thought maybe there's a way I can help other people realize that you don't have to go through life just barely getting through the day. Just because we're veterinarians and we dedicate our lives to this, there's more to life than just being a vet. So I started the Instagram account for the whole veterinarian with the thought of maybe doing a podcast. And then I enjoyed it so much that I eventually moved into the podcast. And it was a wake up call, really, what is what it was. It was just like my body was like, nope, (laughs) you're doing too much stuff. How did you meet your mentor? Because I hear mentorship talked a lot about within veterinary medicine, but him being outside of the the industry, I think is unique in itself because I do think there's great mentors that don't have to be veterinarians. How did you connect? Yeah. So he actually is a veterinarian. He was an equine veterinarian. That being said, he has worked in industry and then now on his own as a consultant for a long time. So interestingly, he was a family friend and he had been offering to help me for a while. And I was almost just too busy, like getting through the day to even take him up on it. So once I finally was like, okay, this is not working. And I reached out to him. He was more than happy to spend some time with me. But yeah, mentorship is huge. And I agree. I think there can be definitely people outside of the veterinary industry that can help us. I mean, like business, finance, like we don't know it all. We have to be smart and find the people that do know and can help us grow. Yeah. And one of the things you also talked about is you started the Instagram page with the thought of doing the podcast. You mentioned a name and some people might know it, others might not, but like Seth Godin, was he kind of the one that gave you the kick to finally do the podcast or was there other pieces that were involved there? Yeah, no, I would not have the podcast if it weren't for Seth Godin. (laughs) And the funny thing about that is I did not really know Seth Godin before I found out about this podcast fellowship. So he and his team have created a bunch of workshops under the name Akimbo, which is also his podcast. And I don't know, I saw somewhere this advertisement, probably on social media for this podcast workshop. And it was pretty inexpensive. It hit me at the right time. It was starting at the right time. I'm pretty slow in January. That's when it started. I was like, let me just take this and figure out if it's that hard. Everyone around me kept saying, you can't do a podcast. You have no idea how to do a podcast. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So let me find out about it. And the thing that Seth and the team have done in all of their work, it seems, is that they create this community of support and collegiality that pushes you through this workshop. And if you're engaged and engaging with other people, you see how much you're growing. So I think the way that he, besides the like macro view of, yes, he taught me how to do a podcast. Like I think the way he has impacted me the most is by hammering in the fact that by focusing in on your smallest viable audience, that is how you will create work that benefits other people. And that's his whole thing. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be this massive thing. Slowly, his phrase is drip by drip. If you do some work and you put yourself out there, you will do something that benefits the world. And I took that to heart and it was an amazing experience. And if anyone has any interest in, they have a ton of things, the marketing, creative writing, a ton of workshops. So if anyone has any interest and then I started really following him after that and his blog is awesome and short and the podcast is also really cool. So inspiring. You stay connected to anyone from that uh, workshop that started podcasts as well? Do you Mm -hmm. talk to anyone? Yeah. So they actually have an alumni similar forum for alumni. And 
So then you also get to meet new alumni. So I'm now closer probably with a few other podcasters that graduated before me. I was in the fifth cohort. And so I think they've run six now. So I've gotten to be pretty close with a couple of people that were before me and they do a monthly call where you can kind of regroup on how your podcast is going and ask questions. I mean, the support is amazing. And I think that's what helps sustain me in the growth for the podcast, but also just personal growth. I mean, there's other alumni on that forum that aren't even podcasters and they're offering different courses and things that they've created. And it's all, everyone there is there to create something to better humanity, really, and fundamentally. So it's a great group of people. And I know like the inspiration for the podcast was because, again, you talked about like liking Seth's podcast now, but the other podcasts that you listen to or books or you know, we kind of chat a little bit on like favorites. Do you have anything that you would share or suggest yeah. any topic that you like? And again, I know this is like such a broad topic. Yeah. It's like picking a favorite child. I could never pick a favorite, but yeah, I listen to a ton of podcasts. It's probably embarrassing the number of podcasts I subscribe to. I use like three different apps <laughs> to listen to all my podcasts. I would say for personal development, I can't not say Brene Brown's Unlocking Us. It's amazing. I love her. Also, kind of in that vein, 10% Happier is a meditation-based podcast, but they cover a lot of topics and it's really enlightening. TED Talks Daily is also a great one. Super short. So it's like usually under 10 minutes, but lots of topics and kind of eye-opening. And then my husband and I are also into real estate investing. So Bigger Pockets, Bigger Pockets Money and Choose FI are like the money ones for me. But oh my God, so many. And then if you find my Instagram account ever, I share tons on there. And I just recently did a couple of veterinary ones. So this podcast and a couple others. So I share a lot on there. Yeah. And I appreciate the shout out. And yeah, interesting because I'm familiar with Bigger Pockets. And I think I've listened to a little bit of the TED Talk daily. But yeah, podcast for me is the easiest way to like consume content. It's just hard to find time for some of the other things, but podcasts work really well. Obviously, anyone listening to this listens to podcasts. Yeah. So some yeah. good suggestions. I'll link to those. That way it's easy to find them as yeah. well. As an equine vet listening in the car. I mean, it's a nice way to fill the time too. <laughs> and so one of the things when we talked, you like gave me this little teaser to ask about this. And so I'd love to hear your opinion because it is such a hot topic in vet med, but you said you had strong opinions about income-based <laughs> repayment. Do tell. I do. And, you know, look, I graduated 12 years ago. So income-based repayments, I don't think were even an option. I'm certainly not the most well-versed in options today, but I've tried to kind of learn a little bit about them. And I think it hit home for me when I listened to a lecture during the wellness track at AEP and this woman wanted to be an equine vet and she graduated from an offshore school. So she had a huge amount of debt and she watched it grow by like $150,000 in the first couple of years. And she said, there's no way it can be an equine vet because of this. And it's heartbreaking. I thought of myself and part of the plan after kind of reorganizing my life was to pay off my student loans. And I'm in a unique situation. I have a spouse and we were able to dump a lot of my salary towards my student loans, but I paid them off. And in doing that, I felt such a weight off that I didn't even know was there. Because when I graduated, you signed up for the 30-year repayment plan and they just told you, like, you'll just have them forever. It's fine. They are like similar to inflation. Just deal with it. That was about the education, literally about the education we got. And when I paid them off, the weight that was off of me to then 
think of projects like the podcast or slowing down to volunteer or slowing down to spend more time with my kids, it was such a weight off that I just, I'm concerned that as a default option for students graduating now, people are not taking into consideration the mental health aspect of it. And granted, I get there are people that have huge loan balances that you could not possibly pay off the monthly payment. I get it. Like that is there for a certain population of people. It seems as though it's a default kind of payment plan currently for most people. It's hard to imagine, even as a student yourself, it's hard to imagine what that will feel like to watch your loan balance grow, even though you know it's going to be forgiven. Like you have to wait that whole 20 years and just sit there and watch your debt grow. Like it was bad enough to watch it decrease incrementally because you're mostly paying interest payments. And to watch it grow, I just feel like it has to be a huge part of the problem that we have as veterinarians, like the struggle that we face. I don't know. That's my opinion. And you're sticking to it. No, I think there's a lot of validity in everything you just said. And I hear that too. And each situation is different, right? Like you're going to have a situation where you may or may not be able to do that. But yeah, you got to take into consideration. And I'm starting to get questions now like, well, do you think the federal government at some point is just going to forgive them all and it's not going to matter? So that should just be the default. So don't pay down on it. It's kind of hard to plan for those kind of what ifs when. Yeah. I mean, if that happens, awesome. And sign up for that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Show me that option. I'll take that one. Right. Yeah. It's so individual. I guess what I would say is to students, like really educate yourself on your options or people like very recently graduated, like really educate yourself because even me, like my dad refinanced something to combine and I wasn't a part of it. And my interest rate went from four and a half to seven. So like I didn't take enough ownership of my loans. I'm sure I paid way more than I should have, like if I had optimized it correctly. And luckily people like yourself and other people who are getting interested in veterinary student debt are here to help. So I would just suggest like take ownership of your loans. Don't just ignore them. Like my kind of age people, we just were like, like, I don't know, they're big and I'll pay them off later someday. Maybe I guess that would be my advice. So you were an associate for two years before starting your own business. Can you kind of talk about just what the business looks like today, the changes, transitions, Mm -hmm. and why you wanted to start your own business? Because I think practice ownership in all forms and fashions are going to be an equine vet's a little different than others, but I would love to kind of hear your journey and desires there. So the first year was a traditional internship. And then the second year was sort of a secondary internship with a sports medicine focus. So I would never call myself a true associate, I guess, because I was sort of in training that whole time. And I graduated in 2008. So the recession had hit and my husband was not able to relocate. He's a fourth generation mushroom farmer and we were going to be in Chester County, Pennsylvania, and no one was hiring. The person that I had been working for had kind of, we had talked about the idea of potentially opening a satellite clinic here for him. And I put together a business plan. I did all the research and I thought, uh, why am I going to do all this work for someone else? And at the same time, he had recently made a big investment and didn't have a ton of capital to lend me. And we both just decided it was better, but I had done the business plan. So I asked my grandmother for a loan and started with the Subaru hand-me-down and (laughs) it was insane, but I just started. And luckily I had great training. I felt really well prepared on the medicine front. And also luckily I'm right next to New Bolton Center, which is an excellent referral facility and a ton of other referral facilities nearby. So when things were over my head, I had resources. So I started off, I guess, like anybody else who starts their own practice and just 
hustled hard and worked all the time. I also did supplement my income. I worked at a racetrack as a state vet. So I got a little paycheck that way and grew the business. It's been open for 10 years now. Having kids really changed my outlook. I wanted to be around with them. The point was not to work and never see them. I'm lucky my parents live nearby and my in-laws. And so I had a lot of help with the kids, but I really wanted to focus on ways to see them more. And I think some people would have hired an associate at that time, but it just wasn't something I was interested in managing. My practice was really built on individualized care and being able to get me. That has its own challenges, right, with boundaries and things. But I just kind of knew that an associate wasn't the right fit. So what I did as it kind of happened sequentially with adding another child and certain other things, but I basically started focusing on my top 20%, which is what business people tell you to do anyway, right? So I've now kind of curated it to my top 20%. And I'm very small, like it's a very boutique practice. And it's all people that I get along well with. And not all of them have indisposable funds, but they all want to do the right thing by their horse. And they're willing to take my recommendations. We try to make realistic plans. And I have to say I'm more profitable than I've ever been. And I think that's because I've weeded out the people that just want you to stop by for a quick Coggins and then never call you again. And I've also tried to kind of keep it a little more local. I used to drive two hours to do some x-rays and like, I just don't have time in my day for that anymore if I want to see my children. So it's probably a unique way of creating a business, but it's worked for me. And I think if equine medicine is going to be sustainable, I think we have to start thinking outside the box because no one wants to work 80 hour weeks being on call all the time anymore. It's just not the way it's going to go forward. And hopefully people can adjust to that. Absolutely. And just listening to you talk about kind of shrinking to grow in a way from a profitability mm-hmm. standpoint. Yeah, for sure. How was maybe firing or getting rid of some people that maybe were a little bit of a PETA client, which is just you mm-hmm. know those people that just cause you stress and don't treat you very well? Yeah, I have to say, I can kind of start to think of the first couple people. And I mean, really, the word is liberating. It's very different to fire a client that's not paying you. I mean, that's a different category. But to fire someone just because it's not meshing well or they're soul sucking and draining you is liberating. And I think, I mean, I talk about boundaries a lot of my podcasts, but boundaries are hard and that's where you have to start enforcing them. But then you'll see benefits from doing that. And it kind of took me to having kids to set up boundaries. And I guess some would say with certain people, I still have zero boundaries, but they also don't abuse my boundary. They don't abuse our relationship. Pretty much everyone I have now is very respectful and understands that I have a life outside of being a vet. And so I think that's why it works really well. But yeah, firing, oh yeah, it felt good. And like you just realize that those clients are probably better served by someone else. If I'm really annoyed with them, I am not doing the best job for their animals that I could be. And they'll probably fit better with someone else or a different type of practice, like where there's eight different people that can help them as opposed to just the one me. Like maybe they need a secretary to farm it out to the first person that can answer. So I think if you can take a stand and get rid of some of those people, I think you'll probably be happy. How did you grow and build your brand? Was it just being and kind of selling you and kind of your skills and expertise and them getting 
you talked about that and I've heard that from an equine client of mine that it's very much they want you, you, know, mm-hmm. you build those relationships they want you they don't want someone else they want to make yeah. sure that you come and see right equine clients are unique and all clients have plus and minuses I guess but you form a very close bond with most of them you know the good ones and I don't have a ton of experience working in a group practice so I don't know exactly what it would be like but for my clients they are really happy to be able to get me on the phone. And it took some training to say like text or email or X, Y, Z, if it's not an emergency, but like you call me twice in a row and I will answer that phone for you because I know it's an emergency. So yeah, I think growing the business, probably a lot of it is being too available, like in an unhealthy way initially. And it was word of mouth. I mean, I spent some money initially advertising and like a horse owner is not going to switch over to you because they see an ad horse owners are too well educated and know enough. So it has to be a friend of theirs saying, oh, you're not happy with your current vet. Well, Stacey did a really great job with this lameness case and I can always get her or she always has great backup or XYZ. So yeah, I think it's definitely selling yourself. And part of that is a confident thing, I think, and it grows as you grow. I love it. What do you see? I guess you kind of maybe answered the question already, but from an equine perspective, what are the opportunities? Because it is definitely a unique area in veterinary medicine. And I think it has its own challenges. Where do you think the opportunities are? Is it trying to be smaller? I know that's kind of like the easy answer probably, Mm -hmm. but I just love to hear your thoughts on just kind of equine medicine. I don't think it's trying to be smaller. I think it's being creative. Like, look, there are a ton of opportunities. I checked before we hopped on here. There are 394 job openings currently. When I graduated, there were like three. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> not to say that all of those jobs are great or the culture at the practices are ones that you would want to join or some of them are specialist jobs, obviously. But there are tons of people looking for equine vets. I think because it's such a job seekers market, I think the opportunity lies in being creative. So if you see a job in a place that you really want to go to or sounds great, but the job description doesn't exactly match what you want, like I would just say, hey, I'm available three days a week, but I also want to work at this shelter and do spays one day a week. Like this is what I can offer you. Is that helpful? And maybe it is and maybe it's not. But I think unless we start being more creative with whether it's a bunch of solo people sharing coverage, which is what I do a lot of times, or a big group practice with a bunch of part-time people. I think horse owners are adaptable. Like they do love getting me, but they're also adaptable. And if they are getting serviced well and have emergency coverage, even if it's split, like they're not unreasonable. They know that we can't do it all. I just think that moving forward, there's a ton of opportunity in equine medicine if we can think outside the box. That's a good point. Um, thinking about the way that you talked about growing at first of just being like too available to an unhealthy sense. I think a lot of times when anyone starts a business and we joked about this with each other, like you kind of underprice your services because you just want anyone and everyone to come work with you because you're like, I just need some revenue to make yeah. things go. Yeah. Why do you think it's been so hard to go back and actually try to charge what you're worth or feel like you're worth asking people to increase the cost of your services? Because I think that's a really hard conversation to have, to come back to someone and say, hey, you're actually way underpaying me. And even if they know it, they're still going to be like, well, you know, really? Like, yeah, just seems like such a struggle. And it's not just a veterinary medicine thing. It's a lot of places, anyone that starts their own business. 
Yeah. I mean, going back and changing prices is particularly hard, but I will go back to the fact that if they're a good client and a good match for you, they're going to go with it. They're going to pay what you decide to charge them. I think in general, veterinarians, for a couple reasons, don't charge enough. I think, A, we don't know what we're worth. We're not taught enough about the business or money in school to know what we're worth. So how are you supposed to know what to charge? I think we love animals and we want to help them. (laughs) That's just like inherent. And if someone can't do something, you're like, I'll just give you a discount on that because I really think it needs to be done. Obviously, you also have to make a living. So that's not a great way to go about it. So I think educating yourself or associates on how much things actually cost. Like you can't just go discount your exam fee because you think it's not that much money, but like you're paying a tech and you're paying the office staff. People don't know that unless you've run a business. And even when you're starting a business like me, I didn't take all that into consideration. So I think I have an interest in business. And so some of the business CE that I've done has taught me how to actually price appropriately, look at all the charges of your cost, figure out the time, add a percentage markup. Other people are just like, oh, well, so-and-so charges X, Y, Z. So that's what I'm going to charge. But that doesn't make any sense because their costs could be remarkably different than your costs or they're probably undercharging also. So So I think a lot of it comes down to education, both on ownership side and associate side. And then unfortunately, there's the emotional side. And I'm not sure I have an answer to fix that one because we're suckers. (laughs) (laughs) CE that you liked from a business perspective or any courses, any suggestions, things that come to mind? And if you can't recall them, that's totally okay. But I just think that's a good area to think about. Yeah, I pretty much tried to hit any business course at any big meeting that I went to. A lot of them were small animal, and I actually still learned a lot. I think Mark Opperman spoke at a CVC, which I don't even think it's called that anymore, which was an entirely small animal-based conference. But I went because I wanted to see some of my friends. And I went to the business lectures, and I learned a ton. For Equine Now specifically, I would suggest if you have any interest in ownership or have recently started, or even me, I had started a long time ago. Amy Grice runs a decade one. It's called decade one. And it's usually regional groups of it's kind of becomes a mastermind. And she does some education, but it's also like very built upon collaborating with the other vets in the group. And I also had her on the podcast. If you have any interest, you can listen to that. But The decade one groups for equine practitioners in particular, especially like smaller end of things, is amazing. She was a member of what was called VMG, which is the management group, but that's for big practices only. I contacted them to try to get involved and they were like, no, you don't make enough money. You can't contribute anything. And (laughs) And I think Amy, having been a part of that, knew that that was the case, but also knew that there were a ton of people out there like me who could benefit from business education and sharing of information and ideas. And so that's why she created them and top notch. Awesome. I appreciate that. Next question. Do you know or have a target that you try to hit to think about what your time's worth? Like what an hourly rate is for you right now? And not that I'm asking you to say what it is. Sure. I know what it costs to run my business per 15 minutes. So when I think of procedures or like a consultation fee, like I recently looked at some x-rays for someone that I did not know. And that used to be a thing that we never charged for. And I'm trying to get really better about it. It was easy for me to come up with a number because I 
know how much it costs to run my business for 15 minutes. And mine's a lot less than most people. I mean, I don't have a big facility. I don't have a ton of staff. So you really have to dig into your balance sheet to know how much that is. Last question on the business side, favorite business book that's helped you or podcast episode if you have a podcast episode since we have been talking a lot about podcasts. I cannot possibly pick one podcast (laughs) episode. I guess Atomic Habits falls under a business book. I also really liked Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. Atomic Habits is James Clear. I just feel like it's not really business. It's just about habit formation, but really helpful and like kind of eye-opening. I love that book. I need to reread it like once a year probably. Yeah, me too. I'm glad to. Yeah. (laughs) Also, I would say this is also not a business book, but I think it could really help people insofar as practice culture, but also dealing with clients is Gretchen Rubin's The Four Tendencies. It's a categorization of personalities based. It's not like a personality assessment, but it categorizes people into four types based on how they respond to expectation. And it's like mind-blowingly simple, but also very helpful. I'll make sure to link to those. And I can say for a fact that Atomic Habits is great. That's an excellent one. I've not read the other two. I've heard of, I think, both of the other two and heard positive things. I mean, Profit First is basically like, you have to pay yourself. You can't just like give all your money away and then be left with nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Seems like it should be basic, but most of us probably don't do it that way. Yeah. When I hear that, I also think like, oh, Amazon grew forever because they basically never made a profit and just kept reinvesting, kept reinvesting. But that's not necessarily yeah, a, a model for <laughs> veterinary medicine. So yeah. I was like, I have to say that because it's going to bug me if I don't. But yeah, <laughs> like you have to have some standard of living to cover all the other costs and things that are going on. Again, this has been, I know, kind of all over the place, but that's the fun conversations when they can kind of bounce around. What's a soapbox topic or something that when you think about veterinary medicine that you wish more people understood? And and again, you can kind of plug what you're doing with your podcast and your Instagram page and all that stuff with the answer, or it can be something completely separate that has hit you recently. Well, yeah, I think the soapbox is that we need to create a fulfilled life in order to be successful human beings. But I would say for veterinarians, we all kind of know that, right? We know we should take time to ourselves and exercise and process our emotions. But I would say, I don't think this is because you're a financial planner, but I think that having your personal finances in order can drastically alter the course of your life. I'm going to swipe your swipe and I'm going to swipe a phrase from our mutual friend, Meredith Jones, who runs the Veterinary Financial Summit and the Debt-Free Veterinarians Group. She calls it a cash flow plan. I hate the word budget. I asked her what her suggestion was, and she calls it a cash flow plan. And I think without knowing your ins and outs, there's no way to really advance the rest of your life. So whether you want to pay off your student loans or you don't want to pay off your student loans, whether you want to go on vacation, whether you want to have kids, whether you want to save for a house, whether you want to buy into a practice, all of those things hinge on knowing what you have or if you're using your savings in the right way. And it's funny, I'm like the last person to talk about this. Money was not in my education, but I feel like over the last couple of years, planning around money has made such a change in my life and my family's life that I can't not say that as a tool because we are strapped with a lot of debt, most of us, and we don't make huge salaries. So you have to make a plan, I think. And yeah, that's my soapbox. To follow up on that, I just talked this week 
to the Central Indiana Veterinary Medical Association and kind of kick things off, like why does money matter? And there's a really good quote from the book, The Behavioral Investor from Dr. Daniel Crosby. He wanted to be a clinical psychologist and then kind of learned, oh, I don't like to have people sitting on a couch telling me their problems. This is too depressing. And his dad was a financial advisor. So he started going into like behavioral finance and understand why people do what they do. Mm-hmm. And he found a lot of research around the dopamine effect around money. It's similar to like, if you see someone that is of the opposite sex when you're younger, that's like attractive, like these same hits of like mm-hmm. sugar or your team scoring a touchdown or whatever it is, like the things that matter to you. And money has that same effect on us. And it's really interesting. And the American Psychological Foundation, I think it's 64% of Americans say it's the number one stress or it's severely stressful to them. And I would say in veterinary medicine, it's very, very true as well. Yeah. It's the number one cause of divorce. So there's just so many things that hinge as much as people want to talk about money doesn't buy happiness. And I completely agree with that, but it can help you alleviate some of the issues that are there if you know that that part of your life is set. So you can focus on some of the other different pieces and right. get those addressed and you can spend more time in your relationships and not have to stress about it as much. So. Again, it's like going to the barber and saying like, do I need a haircut? But yeah, for me, obviously, it's a huge thing that I'm trying to continue to, to talk to people about. So yeah, yeah I know no. we did not pre-plan that for everybody, but no, I appreciate no, no. that. I know I was like, am I thinking of this just because? But I don't think that's true. I think I'm very thankful for the work that you're doing for us and other people also. But I think, like you said, it clears your thoughts or worries to move on to other things if you have a plan. I mean, even if it's not going perfectly, like I don't do it perfectly. I just, you know, at least there's some plan to it. Yeah. And having a plan is not hiring someone and paying someone necessarily. It's just like trying to dedicate some time to saying, I'm going to at least think about this and try to make decisions that are going to move me forward to whatever it is that I'm trying to get to. Right. And being someone that is going to hold themselves accountable or their spouse or whatever. So I appreciate that response on yourself for people that want to learn more. And you kind of talked about a couple different episodes that sound very interesting as far as areas to learn more. Where could people connect, learn more about you, find you, all that good stuff? Where would you send them? Well, the website is just thewholeveterinarian.com. I'm taking a season break. So I'm hoping to kind of fill out the resources on the website a little bit more. Right now, it's mostly the podcast episodes and a few links to my favorite books and podcasts, but I'm hoping to work on that a little bit more. Instagram is where I post most frequently. Some of it goes to the Facebook page, but I try to stay off Facebook as much as possible because it just sucks you right in. So Instagram is at The Whole Veterinarian. And then the podcast is The Whole Veterinarian anywhere you listen to podcasts. Do you want to tease any of those updates for the website, things that you want to see included, or is it still to be determined? Oh, it's mostly I want to just link to more resources. I did a big section on sort of learning about white privilege and the fact that veterinary medicine is like the least diverse professional career in the country. So I did a big section on that and I basically just want to fill out sort of money sections and wellness sections. Meditation is a big part of my life. So I want to fill out some more scientific information for vets on that. So yeah, no, just mostly kind of topics that I've covered on the podcast and just elaborate more. And then we'll start recording and you'll be in next season. And I'm excited to see where the podcast goes. Absolutely. Well, I can say I appreciate everything that you're doing. I'm glad we were able to get connected and yeah, me too. On podcast and record together. Thank you so much for the time today. And uh, yeah, we'll chat soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax or legal advice. 
All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.